If you would, open your Bibles with me. We're in Psalm 7, Psalm chapter 7. Stu did a great job of setting this psalm up in that prayer. I, I really appreciate uh, the work that he put into that. Remember when I was working as assistant manager at U-Haul, I was overseeing a center underneath a general manager, and a customer comes in, they return the truck, and this is kind of like a debate that I've dealt with many, many times at this point. They bring the truck back with half the amount of gas than they left the center with. And, oh boy, here we go again. So we start having the conversation, and I say to the customer, you have two choices before you. Choice number one, you can get back in the truck, you can go to the gas station, and you can bring it back with what you left with. Choice number two is you pay the fuel charge. I advised that you do number one because number two is really, really expensive. Well, they're having none of it. They're like, well, that truck is a piece of junk, and I'm not doing this, and you can't tell me what to do. And I say, fine, that's fine. So you're choosing choice number two. So I charge them the fuel charge. And they leave, and they're very angry, and they've said some very angry words to me. The next day, I come back to work, and my manager comes up to me, and he says, Rob, a customer has called corporate, and they have issued a formal complaint against you. I'm like, what? What did I do? He says, well, they say that you swore at them and that you took a stack of papers and you threw it directly in their face. Now, I don't know how you feel when someone says you did something and they're lying through your teeth, but I felt indignation in that moment, and I was ready to set the record straight with the manager, only he stops me dead in his traps. He says, Rob, I know they're a liar. I'm like, what do you mean you know they're a liar? He's like, I have been working with you for two years, and I have never once heard you use the words that they said you used in that conversation. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been wrongly accused, falsely accused? Well, sometimes it happens, and things go all right for you. But you know what? You come to a realization somewhere earlier in life where you come to the recognition that life's not always fair. Sometimes it doesn't go so well for you. It makes me think about this 19-year-old boy I read about recently. In 19, uh, July uh, 16th, 1997, a 19-year-old boy was accused of a double homicide that had taken place in a small village. It was two young girls who had been killed. Now, on the day of the murder, this boy happened to be some 350 miles away from the scene of the crime. He's in Manila in the Philippines. And he has 35 witnesses, a classroom of kids, of fellow students, and teachers, and school logs who all say that he was present that day at school. In addition to that, he has the records of his apartment that he had checked into the apartment that night, checked out in the morning, and yet he's accused, and a local drug lord pays off Local officials and the police never look into any of the evidence, and the judge is sleeping in the middle of court. 
The boy's name's Paco, and justice didn't get served that day. Poor Paco went to jail. What do you do when life is not fair? How do you respond to it? You know, we live in a world where we face adverse circumstances, where things happen to us that are due to no fault of our own. Maybe it's a spouse that just walks out in the middle of a marriage. Or maybe you, in good faith, partnered in finances with someone, and then you meet economic ruin. Or maybe someone just falsely accuses you, or some other myriad of circumstances that happen outside of our control. What do you do about it? Well, once again, in our series, Living Beyond the Muck, David teaches us how to navigate these mucky waters. So we're going to work through this psalm, and we're going to do it verse by verse. We're going to start with the first two verses, and we're going to observe how David deals with his own personal injustice. It says at the beginning, the Shigayon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest, like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. So, here we have another episode in David's life where we don't have all of the details. Uh, we're told an indication that there is this accuser, his name's Cush, and this accuser comes from a certain tribe. He comes from the tribe of Benjamin. If you know the story of David's life, you can start reading between the lines a little bit. Benjamin happens to be the tribe from which David's mortal enemy, King Saul, came from. Remember, Saul hated David's guts. Why? Because he was jealous that the Lord had anointed David to be the next king of Israel. And that grudge continued on throughout the tribe of Benjamin. David is accused of something. We get a little more indication of what that is in verse 4. He says, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause. In other words, Cush is accusing David of being a backstabbing thug. He's a bully. He's a backstabber. If you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, how does God want you to react, to respond to this type of rejection, to this type of betrayal, to this type of false accusation? What does he want you to do with the cushions of the world? Does he want you to get evil? even with them. Well, as you read the scriptures and as you observe life, you, you come to the realization that retaliation, vengeance, doesn't tend to go well for people. I have exhibit A here on the screen. Now, I just have one question. How did this episode of revenge seeking go for Will Smith? Did it help or hurt his career? It turns out as you do more observation in life that revenge seeking doesn't go well for you. 
And David, instead of kind of like laying the smack upon Cush and company, he decides to do something different. He decides to pray. And once again, this word about God emerges. He refers to God as a refuge. Remember, we saw that in Psalm 2, and then we see it in Psalm 5, and now we see it once again in Psalm 7. It's almost as if the Psalms are flashing a neon light in our face, and they're saying, do you understand that God is your refuge? Now, I want to just make a very obvious statement about refuge. It only works if you enter into it. In other words, if the bombs are raining down in the sky and you choose to remain outside the bomb shelter, you are going to get blown up. So over and over and over again, the Psalms are going to come back and they're going to ask you, do you really trust that God is your refuge? Where do you turn when the bottom falls out? Here's the thing. It's inevitable. There are going to be seasons of life where life gets mucky, where it gets hard, where circumstances turn adverse. Where do you turn when that happens? Do you turn inward? Do you try to solve the problem yourself? Do you turn to the bottle? Do you lose yourself in entertainment, becoming just endlessly entertained on your phone or the television or in games or something else like that? Do you turn to your portfolio? Do you seek to hedge in life? Do you look for connections to save you from the problem? That's not what David does. David knows where his refuge is. He turns in that direction. Now, you need to hear me clearly. Taking refuge in God does not mean that you do nothing. <laughs> uh, if someone falsely accuses you, it's not wrong to seek to vindicate yourself. It's not wrong to seek to save your reputation. But you have to get the order of operations correct. I really appreciate John Bunyan's words about prayer. He says, you can do more than pray after you have prayed. But you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Why? Listen to his words on prayer. Pray often, for prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, a scourge to Satan. But Rob, I'm listening to this psalm. I'm hearing David speak about prayer. I'm hearing John Bunyan speak about prayer. And yet, all of these circumstances that I go through in life, they still make me feel fearful and anxious. Of course they do. Do you think David never felt anxiety in his life? Do you think he didn't feel anxious before he prayed and anxious after he prayed? Take a look at the picture that he's providing for us in the psalm. He is seeing in his mind his enemies like a lion tearing its prey apart. Now, David has seen this firsthand. He was a shepherd after all. He had watched the lion circle around one of his sheep. He had tried to fend them off, but it didn't always go in his favor. He watched the gruesome, brutal process. And sometimes, David is saying, in his own life, and by extension, your life, you feel like you're the prey. You feel like it's outside of your control. You feel like your external circumstances are a pack of lions just waiting to pounce upon you. 
But David, as he looks at God, recognizes this God as a refuge, but not an inanimate refuge, no, a living refuge that is able to fight back against the lions. So he brings his case before God in prayer. In verses three through five, he continues his prayer. He says, O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. You see what he's saying here? David is not um, being braggadocious. He's not standing up and saying, guys, I never do anything wrong. I'm perfect. God can't ever find any fault in me. We know David doesn't say that because you read other Psalms. He's done things. But what he is saying is he's saying, I'm innocent of this particular matter. What Cush is saying about me is false. Here's what I found about this idea of innocence. It's not so always so clear. It's not always so easily established in our lives, especially like when your relationships get mucky. Let me just be real with you. I sit in the counseling office sometimes and I hear people present a projection of themselves that is not in line with reality. You'll sometimes see this in marital counseling. You'll have uh, both uh, spouses in the marriage and they're talking about the breakdown of the marriage and both of them are pointing in the opposite direction and the blame is exclusively that way. I mean, I didn't do anything in all this. My hands are clean, I'm innocent, I haven't done anything. Harry likes to say that there are, um, I'm going to mess this one up, so I'll read it exactly because this is worth noting. There's two sides to every piece of baloney. <laughs> is that right, Harry? Did I get it right? Yeah, that's good. Two sides. He said next time, though, that I can say I always say that, so that's my quote now. Two sides to every piece of baloney. Now, George Bush said it a little less eloquently. He said, too often we judge other groups by their worst examples while judging ourselves by our best intentions. Hmm. Turns out that you're really good at making bologna sandwiches and I'm really good at it. And we get in these mucky relational dynamics and we're not so good. We talked a couple of weeks ago about this moral Dunning-Kruger effect. We're not always good at evaluating ourselves morally. So what do wise people do? What sort of discernment process do they walk through? I suggest three steps. Step number one is you have to approach multiple mentors, trusted mentors to help you discern. Uh, I like what Proverbs 15:22 says. It says, "Without counsel plans fail, but with many advisors they succeed." And this is just as true for growing as a person as it is navigating a process or making a decision in life. We need people to speak into our lives. Now, here's the second step. Try your best to avoid adding your interpretation. Again, we like making bologna sandwiches. We're good at it. So the best way to avoid making the sandwich is to be objective in how you describe the dynamics. Here's what I said. 
Here's what they said. Here's what I did. Here's what they did. But you need this third piece. You have to invite a mentor to speak freely. You have to have someone in your life that's willing to call out a bologna sandwich when they see one. And I'll tell you, in my experience, as I look out, I see many Christians leading what I would call counselless lives. Meaning they don't ask anyone else for their opinion on a dynamic because perhaps, perhaps, they don't care what anyone else's opinion is. And the scripture says that's dangerous because guess what? When you maintain a diet of bologna sandwiches, you don't grow. You need people to help you see and discern. Now, David, he knows that he's innocent in this context. And what I like about the Bible is it provides us this principle around innocence. It tells us this. It tells us that there is safety and integrity. Meaning if you do the right things, you can expect the right results in life. Now, what is integrity after all? It is who you are when no one's looking. If you're the same person behind closed doors as you are outside of those doors, then you have integrity in life and you're operating in integrity. And yes, life isn't always fair. So what kind of protection is there in integrity? Well, Proverbs 28.1 tells us this protection. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as lions. Why are the righteous bold? Because they know the truth. They know the accusation is false. So here you have David anxious about lions surrounding him, and now he turns into the lion. He's bold, and he boldly brings his prayer request before the Lord. Now, having said all of that, Paco's still in jail. You've had things said about you that just weren't true, and there was nothing that you could do to change some people's minds about that. What do you do? Well, David shows us that you take refuge in God's character. Here's the thing about shelter. Not every shelter that is out there gives you peace of mind, okay? If I take two sticks and I lean them against one another and then I sleep under those two sticks overnight and then this giant hailstorm erupts with golf ball-sized hail, guess what happens to me? I get pulverized. Now, some people will assert that your faith, your confidence, your trust in God is like those two sticks leaning against one another. In other words, if you believe in God, the only reason you believe in God is because you need a crutch in life. That makes you feel better. But David's like, no, 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 no. God is far more substantial than that, and that's why he keeps praying into God's character. Listen to what he says, verses 6 through 11. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord. According to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me, oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. 
And may you, you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. So let's get to the heart of why David is bringing this prayer to this God. What do you do, say perhaps you've paid good money for home insurance, and you have a reasonable claim, something that has happened to your house due to no fault of your own has occurred, and, and then you take that claim to the insurance company and you hit the wall of bureaucracy. You call the first person and they can't help you, and you escalate it up the ladder and you keep calling, you keep calling, you keep calling, and finally you come to the realization that they don't intend to honor the claim. What do you do? Or maybe a different scenario, you enter into a business arrangement with a partner and over time, you start looking at the books, and you discover that they've been extorting money from the business. You confront the partner. They lie. I didn't do that. You show them irrefutable evidence. They just simply walk away from the business. What do you do? Well, you take them to court. You sue in your defense. You plead your case. And David is showing us the same type of dynamic here in Psalm chapter 7 with Cushion Company. He knows that God is the best place to take his case. Why is that? Well, in verse 8, he says that he judges all the peoples. If you look later in the New Testament, James chapter 4, verse 12, it tells us that there's only one lawgiver and one judge. So ultimately, when you deal with dynamics that are due to no fault of your own, where you're being falsely accused, there's no better place to take your prayer request than to God. Why is that? Well, number one, God's impartial. Look at verse 8. And David's just being downright honest with the dynamic. He's saying, judge me. Consider my actions. See if I've done anything wrong in this dynamic, Lord, and then judge them. He's asking for God to be an impartial judge. We don't want a justice system that's two-tiered. We want one that's fair for every single individual person. And that's what David's asking for. He also sees that God is responsive. Take a look at, in particular, verse 11. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Now, multiple times in this psalm, we've heard the language of anger. And of course, for our contemporary ear, we're not always comfortable hearing that God gets angry. But the language is more nuanced than just God simply blowing up. The first thing that you'll notice about this language is this is all wrapped up in the context of, context of a legal court situation. And so David, as he's talking about God feeling indignation every day, it's basically like he's saying that the anger motivates God to pass judgment. Now, you want to live in a justice system where justice is dealt every single day. You don't want to live in a justice system where justice takes a vacation. 
where it puts a sign on the door and says, come back in three weeks, I'm in Aruba, just enjoying myself right now. You want justice to happen, you want sentences passed. But what about anger still? Is it okay? If you look at the Old Testament, for example, the word anger is used some 455 times in the Old Testament, and 375 of those times is a reference to God becoming angry. Oh, okay, I get what's going on there. That must mean that the God of the Old Testament is a very overbearing, angry type of person, and the God of the New Testament, well, he's flowery. He's nice. He's so squishy and kind. Hmm. But what about Jesus entering into the temple then? He walks into the temple. He starts flipping tables. He loses his cool. He grabs a whip of cords and he starts like whipping things. That's a lot of anger. He says, you turned the house of prayer into a den of thieves. Does God need to take anger management classes? I like what Winston Churchill said about anger. He said, a man is about as big as the things that make him angry. Now, there's two implications in this quote. The first implication is that there are things that you should get angry over. There are right things to feel anger over. The problem is we tend to get angry about silly things. Like, for example, perhaps the last time you were driving and someone cut you off and they did a road violation and then your rage just boiled over, you need to grow up, right? That's the wrong thing to get angry over. But there's right things. Gary Chapman says this about anger. Anger is the emotion that arises when we whenever we encounter what we perceive to be wrong. Are there wrong things that happen in this world? Absolutely, you better believe it. And if you don't feel anything about those wrong things, you're a robot. You have no emotion. But the key to this quote is, what we perceive to be wrong. Do we always perceive reality correctly? Of course not. I've lost my cool over things and then heard the rest of the story later and felt embarrassed over it. But God's different. God never perceives reality wrongly. He only ever sees reality as it is. And David acknowledges this. He talks about the omniscience of God in verse 9. He says, you who test the minds and the hearts. Now, the prophet Jeremiah would say, the heart's desperately wicked, that you can't evaluate your own heart. But God, on the other hand, he can look into the depths of every single human heart, and he sees it plainly as it is. So he never perceives it wrongly. And there's a reason to get angry. So what causes God to get angry. Well, as I've studied scripture, I see only one thing that causes God to get angry. Evil. Evil. And that's because God is 
good in his entirety of being, and he created a universe that he intended to be good. We see that repeated in Genesis chapter one. It was good, it was good, it was good. And when he created us, it was very good. So God hates anything that disrupts the goodness that he created in the world. And evil is the absence of good. So David latches onto this aspect of God's character, and as he moves through his prayer, he wants to set the record straight. He wants to talk about how the world really works. And we see this in the last verses, 12 through 17. He says, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he's made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. I want you to notice that there's one attribute of God that David focuses on in this psalm. And that attribute is righteousness. Three times, verse 9, verse 11, verse 17. In fact, the end point of the psalm is praise for God's righteousness. Now, let's understand a little bit about God's character. Righteousness is an outflow of God's holiness. What is holiness? Well, holiness is God's separation from all that is morally wrong. He doesn't talk about evil. He doesn't do evil. He won't associate with it. What's anger? Is anger an attribute of God? No. Anger is God's response to evil, right? It's his feelings or his emotions towards evil. And righteousness is holiness in action. This means that God doesn't just get mad and pound the throne when he looks at evil, but he takes action. He responds to it. And David is telling us this as we look at verses 12 to 13. He says that God will wet his sword. He'll bend his bow. He's preparing deadly weapons. He's making arrows with fiery shafts. Well, that sounds kind of violent of God. Well, think about the world David lived in. What did action look like? If someone's coming to kill your family and, 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 and take your crops and destroy your home and, and take your land from you, what do you got to do in that kind of world? You got to strap a sword on your side and you got to defend what's yours. So when David envisions a God of action, he sees God strapping a sword onto his side. Now, what if God does nothing? What if he just looks upon evil and then kind of turns away from it? Well, David says something in verse 14. He says, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lives. Here's the principle. Evil left unchecked produces more evil. 
Evil's not going away as you virtue signal at it. Oh, I think all people ought not to do this thing. It doesn't go away as you kind of turn a blind eye to it and say, well, just because I don't know about it doesn't mean that it's not happening. Evil must be contested. You got to speak about it. You got to do something about it. Do you think that human trafficking is going away if no one does anything about it? Of course not. It's grown in recent years. Why? Because it was allowed to fester in the dark. Evil must be contested. And God always responds to evil. Always. Listen to what happens to the wicked. The wicked person makes a pit. They dig it out, and they fall into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. Let's be honest with ourselves for a moment. Sometimes it feels like evil has the upper hand. Sometimes you look out, and it feels like it's winning. Have you felt that way? I have. But David says that's not the way the world works. That the world happens to be a lot more fair than you realize. Why is that? Well, God is a righteous judge. He always responds to evil. And in one way, you'll see that he judges all people. And this is a view of the final judgment. So there will be no wrong that's been committed in this world that will not be made right as people stand before the judge of the universe. But we also see something here in these verses, that there's justice that occurs along the way. Who do you think stood behind perpetrators like Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein being found out? Was that the law of karma at work in the world? Or was that just simple luck? No. There was a righteous judge behind those things that happened, that unraveled in front of our own eyes in real time. You see, God has created the world in such a way that judgment sometimes looks like a boomerang. Judgment sometimes looks like evil consuming itself. I think of this really kind of gruesome process that Paul Harvey described uh, many decades ago is the process of how Eskimos hunt wolves. Now, here's what they do. They take their hunting knife and they coat the knife in animal blood and then they allow the knife to freeze. And they repeat this process over and over and over again until finally the blade is entirely concealed with frozen animal blood. Then they take the knife, they put the handle down into the ground and they leave the blade exposed. What do wolves do? It's only natural, right? They smell blood. They come. They start licking the frozen blood. The sensation of bloodlust begins to become all-consuming. The more blood that they taste, the more that they lick ferociously on the blade. And the more that they taste, the more they want. And then, somewhere along the way, the 
edge of the blade is exposed and they don't feel the sharp sting of the knife as it lacerates their tongue. And now the cold blood becomes more satisfying. It becomes warm blood. And the process ends with an Eskimo coming and finding a wolf that is frozen on the ground the next day. Sometimes God's judgment looks like that. One last question. We're talking about this topic of righteousness. We, we've noted that God always responds to evil. But my question for you this morning is what about your evil and what about my evil? I know we talk about this idea of evil and and that seems like an order of magnitude away from the things that I've done. I mean, I haven't murdered after all. I haven't done anything like that. But you know what the Bible tells us? That all of us have perpetuated and contributed to the problem of evil. We've all done it. Uh, we hate the fact that the world is a world where you can't always trust what everyone says. You, you listen to news broadcasts sometimes and you think, oh, this is all a bunch of lies. It's misinformation. But the problem with that hatred within us is that we also contribute to the lies. Why? Because if I didn't ever lie, then there would be less lies in the world. But there's not less lies. There's more. Or what about the vitriol and hatred and that kind of stuff that we look out at and we say, I just wish the world wasn't this polarized right now. Again, it's more polarized because of my hatred. God must respond to evil. So what does he do about my evil? Why doesn't he just judge it? Well, the Bible says this, it says he will, but he's patient. And here's something remarkable about God's righteousness. Remember, that means God must always act against evil. But he actually has two roads that he can take as he responds to evil. One road is the judgment road. He must judge evil for what it is. The second road, though, is mercy. You see, mercy is the softer edge of God's righteousness. Now, in Romans chapter 3, Paul explains to us how God was able to choose mercy over judgment by sending his son into the world. Look at verses 25 through 26 in particular. It says, For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate what? His righteousness. For he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Now, maybe before today, you did not realize that being made right with God involved a choice. But there is a choice before us all. The choice is between God's judgment and God's mercy. The choice is between heaven and hell. I know 
when we hear this idea of hell and this doctrine of hell, but that makes us feel uncomfortable. And I, I've got to be honest, I wouldn't talk about hell if the Bible didn't talk about it. But it does. And you know who talked about hell more than anyone else in all the Bible? Jesus. You know why? Because Jesus was motivated to leave heaven so that you wouldn't have to go to hell. And he was willing to endure hell on a Roman, uh, rugged Roman cross so that you would not have to endure the same fate. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever received God's mercy? Well, how do I do that? Well, Paul says it right here. He makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Have you placed your faith, your trust, your confidence in Jesus that his sins were fully, full payment for your sins? Or his blood, excuse me, I messed that up. If you haven't, today's the day. Can I ask you to bow your heads with me in prayer? If you've never made that choice, I just want to lead you through a simple prayer of faith to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You can follow along with me quietly in your heart. Dear Lord Jesus, in the best way I know how, I place my faith in you. I believe that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I believe that you came to this earth and you lived a perfect life and you died in the cross in my place and you rose again from the dead. I believe that your work was sufficient for my salvation. I choose to follow you. I choose to believe this day. In your name I pray.